Welcome to the Academic Work-Life Podcast. My name is Dylan Gomes, and I'm a graduate student at Boise State University. The goal of this podcast is to have a discussion about how we might all live more balanced lives. Um, so I'm here with Dr. Stephen Alexander, um, and you have a, an, an interesting background. So you did an undergrad in geology? That's correct. Um, and then... Uh, on your website, it says you spent 10 years as an educator and administrator for various nonprofits and universities. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your experience there. And yeah, absolutely. You know, when I'm, <coughs> we get, the, the story kind of starts before going to university. As I was finishing high school, I uh, always had this leaning towards becoming an educator. I thought for a long time it was going to be mathematics, uh, but uh, quickly realized when I started getting into calculus and upper level math that that was just a little too outside the, uh, the, the, the norm for my, my brain to think about at that time, my, my young brain. Uh, so I ended up studying geology, and, and the motivation for geology was, was twofold. Was one, I remember taking my first intro geology course, and, uh, or, or let me back up, one was because uh, geology was a way to teach environmental uh, earth sciences. So it was like a very clear kind of discipline that you could then translate into uh, teaching in the classroom. So that was the original motivation, but then I took my first geology class and, and quickly realized, like, wow, the stories that stones can tell is amazing. And it was, and, and quickly, it sounds cheesy, but I, I, it was like this parallel to the Lorax, like I speak for the trees. I felt like, like we needed to share the stories of the stones. Like we could learn so much about landscapes from understanding the geological history about what processes happened and and then how geology ended up relating to the ecology and these river corridors that we see and the environments that we interact with. There's just these amazing, amazing stories. And so, but despite going into geology and then studying geology and, and thinking about wanting to go into education uh, and having this motivation for choosing something that would translate into the classroom, I never really wanted to work in the classroom. I was always interested in, uh, non-traditional settings for teaching. I felt like there was a lot of uh, power uh, from a learning standpoint of being out in the field, uh, whether that's learning about yourself or learning about the environment, learning about human how humans interact with the environment. And so that led me on this path of, of discovery after my undergrad to figure out, well, what does that look like if I don't want to teach in a classroom? Um, what are the different ways I can do that? And the first, the first stop on that journey was out in, in Colorado uh, with an organization called the High Mountain Institute. And the High Mountain Institute runs a program called the Rocky Mountain Semester, which is about, uh, it's a program for high school juniors and seniors where they combine you know, rigorous and traditional high school academics with uh, field expeditions and community-based living and learning. And so we'd often, working in the, teaching the natural history and uh, ecology course, we'd often be able to draw on our, our field expeditions, whether it was around winter ecology or desert ecology, and it just brought the material to life in a way for students to interact and kind of understand and learn that material in a really powerful way. And then uh, continued from there and continued to build on that experience, and uh, from there I ended up uh, heading up to the Teton Science Schools where there was a uh, graduate program in uh, field science education. And again, it was about furthering my own 
understanding of both kind of natural history and ecology, but also uh, around uh, educational pedagogy. And uh, this, this, this progression was kind of both kind of expanding the ways in which I worked in both those domains, but then also um, kind of evolving in the kind of work I was doing with students. And so soon I was moving from just kind of uh, teaching these kind of more standard um, field ecology and natural history courses uh, and classes to thinking about uh, courses with uh, university students where it was much more about how humans come to understand and perceive their environment, how they interact with their environment, how they manage the environment. So it was getting into a much more interdisciplinary space. Um, and so that over that 10-year period, uh, allowed me to, to work with kindergarten students and find and think about place-based education and connecting to the natural world in their schoolyard, to working with teachers and doing professional development, to working with university students and taking university students into the field for upwards of 14 days at a time or full semesters to uh, spend three years helping to run a, a, a full semester program uh, for St. Lawrence University called the Adirondack Semester, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary. And this uh, really unique program uh, was about uh, immersing students in nature and the study of nature. And so it did that by uh, being based in a yurt village that was canoe and hike access only. But then on top of that, all of the coursework was around exploring humans' relationship with the environment through a kind of a philosophical lens, through an English literature and humanities lens, through a land use history lens, and then also kind of through an ecology lens. And then you combine that with this living and learning community where students cooked meals for each other. Um, we had partnerships with local farms and CSAs to source food and meat locally. Uh, ends up creating this really powerful and transformative living and learning environment for students to reevaluate not just their own relationship to the natural world, but also society's relationship, but also their relationship to other humans how we live in community, how we, and the importance of community and how that plays out in the ways in which we, we interact. Um, and so that was a, that was a really amazing uh, time and uh, an opportunity to work with a number of different uh, really great organizations uh, that, you know, both had an opportunity to, to have an impact on students, but also myself. I mean, teaching is, is such a, a profound profession and an opportunity to <clears throat> really help to shape or help individuals to find their way in the world and to come to understand the world and think about what their role is or what they want to do and where they want to go with, with their work. Wow, that sounds, all those courses sound incredible and I can really see how that would be beneficial for somebody to get the whole sort of picture and not just here's a very discreet box of what you could learn, or you know, here's a textbook, and go ahead and learn it. Um, and so somewhere along the journey, you decided that getting a PhD was a good idea, right? <laughs> so. you're, you're, uh, absolutely, although it's a, it's a very interesting, you know, I, my, my motivation originally for, for getting a PhD was having spent three years helping run a, a university semester program, I quickly I began to realize that if I wanted to stay in that environment and, and move up, um, 
in, in terms of ability to teach more or run programs <coughs> that, uh, you know, the way uh, the academy is, uh, higher education, for better or for worse, uh, really puts a huge value on having a PhD, um, despite that a PhD doesn't teach you how to be a better teacher. Um, but, you know, that was the nature of it. And, and so that was my original motivation. And it was a bit naive. Um, because, boy, was I in for a big surprise, because doing a PhD is not about teaching, it's about doing research. And the biggest, you know, advice I ever heard or I would give is, you know, anybody can do a PhD, you just need to really love your research, you need to be committed to it, and excited by it. And if you're not excited by it or committed to it, then it's going to be a a struggle, it's going to be a long journey. Um, And so it, uh, you know, I had this naive um, uh, reason for for starting a PhD, but quickly, um, when I started exploring it and and looking into it more deeply, um, I started getting introduced to even more ideas and concepts in this very interdisciplinary field, introduced to concepts around resilience, the importance of social learning, we think about natural resource management and the role of social networks, and all of a sudden my mind was just firing in all these different ways, and in some regards, it's, you know, I think of, you know, when I think about my own educational journey, I mean, I had a really great undergraduate experience and did a master's along the way doing all that, uh, the educational work, uh, but I think when I was doing my undergraduate, I, I hadn't reached my peak kind of intellectually. I think I was still intellectually immature, not, not immature, but, you know, my, my mind wasn't ready to tackle bigger questions. It took me, you know, I had to live life a little bit. Uh, and so when I went back and, and started my PhD and was exposed to uh, concepts again in political ecology and political economy, uh, you know, it's just like there's all these neurons firing about, you know, the kinds of questions we can ask. And the more I got into uh, working on my PhD, the more I really fell in love with research and, you know, what we can learn from asking questions to help, you know, help inform uh, how we manage and use resources better, more sustainably. Uh, What is the role for communities to play in that and how do communities come together through collective action or what barriers exist for them uh, to to manage the resources and how do they interact with, say, state, provincial, federal governments, uh, with NGOs and kind of the diversity of actors that are at play. And so it was this, you know, the motivation was so that I could go back into academia, but then I got really excited and interested about research. And, and then in that whole journey of, of doing my PhD, started getting really interested in, and was doing kind of on this very interdisciplinary uh, journey. And, you know, that for me that meant, you know, drawing on methods and uh, theories and approaches from anthropology and political science and sociology, uh, behavioral economics, and and how could I draw on those to help uh, this set of central questions around the role of social networks for um, small-scale fisheries, for co-management, for community-based conservation. Uh, And that was really powerful in thinking about what is the role of uh, and the power of doing interdisciplinary research and kind of going deeper into that. And so in the midst of doing all this interdisciplinary research, started kind of going down this kind of new track, which was, you know, what can I do to do more research, which uh, led me to then 
uh, landing at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a NSF-funded synthesis center through the University of Maryland. And there, I was now brought into this environment where it wasn't just about kind of doing interdisciplinary work kind of in the social sciences, but now interacting with um, ecologists as well, uh, those on kind of the natural sciences side of the equation. And how can we start drawing on all of this data that already exists to ask questions? And that was, again, a really uh, a mind-opening experience and taught me a lot of really great lessons about how much, how much work we can do and the kinds of questions we can ask when we not only bridge these different boundaries, but also by drawing on data that already exists. So much money that's been spent to collect data, and we can leverage it in very powerful ways. Um, it doesn't, you know, there, yes, there's still a lot of important questions and work that needs to be done collecting more primary data, whether that's ecological data or biophysical data, um, climate data, or social data. But there's also a lot of data that exists mm -hmm. that we can leverage. And so you've, you've talked a bit about um, sort of always wanting to be an educator and then now this m more new sort of falling in love with research. And so you're... You're currently at the University of Waterloo, is that correct? And That's correct. So I, I uh, kind of live two parallel lives. So uh, I'm an uh, adjunct assistant professor at University of Waterloo, which allows me to continue to work with graduate students uh, and uh, to, per to continue uh, some of the research I've been doing over the past uh, several years. Uh, but then also in my, in my day job, uh, I work as a science advisor for uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, in Canada, which is kind of like the, the, the equivalent to NOAA, the National, uh, National Oceanographic uh, and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and so there as a science advisor, now I'm working at the science policy interface. So this journey I've been on has continued to evolve. And so, you know, in the midst of doing research, you find yourself in a place where you, you feel like you're in the ivory tower and are we getting so into kind of the, our own little world of of research that's not getting translated into decision making. Um, and so now I'm kind of exploring this other domain. What does it look like to <coughs> work at the interface between uh, and kind of helping to translate science and research that's being done and, and helping to bridge that into the decision making process? That's very cool and much needed. And I think a lot of us often feel like, well, what what is the point of this at, at certain times, right? And the point of it is that we're super interested by it and we don't know what that's gonna turn into and you know, discovery for discovery's sake and Absolutely. basic science. But, yeah. um, you have to ask yourself those questions. Like, does, does this matter enough to me to keep doing it? And yeah. that's something you basically, right when you sat down, you said, you know, you have to be passionate yeah. about your research, otherwise you know, forget it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so I, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. I noticed uh, you, I don't know if you would call it a blog or not, but you, you post on your website uh, frequently. And one of the last ones, I think, was about family and field work. Yeah. And I just w wanted to see if you would sort of reiterate some of those thoughts and talk a bit about family and field work and that sort of role. And yeah, absolutely. <coughs> you know, it's a, it's a really, uh, you know, it's a topic that's near and dear to me. And I think, you know, having, I think I, I wrote that post uh, almost five years, six years ago now. Uh, but I feel like it's it's as relevant now, if not more so, as it was then, uh, as we collectively, as a as a community in in academia, um, start having discussions about what does it mean to have work life balance. What does it mean to 
be an uh, early career scholar, be a graduate student, uh, be an academic, be a researcher, but also have a family? How do you balance those things? What does that look like? What kind of resources are out there? Uh, you know, if you hop on Twitter or Facebook on any given day, actually I can't say Facebook, I'm not on Facebook, but on Twitter there's, there's tons of conversations that are, that are happening around this web, around these, these issues around, around family and what does it look like? How do you balance it? What are the trade-offs? What are some of the, um, you know, advice that's being given? Uh, good, bad, ugly. Uh, and what's great is we're at a time now where there's really a lot of discussion and pushback about, you know, how we change the culture. Um, there's some great work led, uh, Kirsty Nash and others launched this uh, website called Academic Life, which does a really amazing job of, of trying to draw attention to uh, how, do we, how do we think about this intersection of, um, of family and, and research. And in, in my case, it was you know, a very personal experience where I was trying to grapple with what does it look like to conduct field work in an international setting uh, with, with my family uh, as part of that journey. And you know, my own, <coughs> I, I had these hesitations uh, going into it and thinking, oh, that's, you know, I had this ideal world, which was you know, me doing my, my field work. Uh, naively on my own, uh, but quickly realized that by having my family there, that uh, it just opened up uh, new doors and brought a different perspective. It was, it, you know, it came with, it meant that, you know, the way I structured my, my field work and my days was going to be different, it had to be a bit more regimented from like a nine to five and thinking about uh, not just, you know, being on my own schedule, but at the same time, it was a profound way to connect with the communities where I was doing my work. Um, so your it, family came with just a yeah, yes, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So my, you know, I was doing as the core of my field work was uh, three months uh, in living uh, down in Jamaica in three different uh, coastal communities, um, and so my family came with me. Our our eldest, uh, it was our our first son. Uh, had been born only a few months prior, and so when he was four months old, uh, him and my wife, uh, who was on uh, maternity leave at the time, uh, were able to join me and be a part of that, be a part of that journey. And it, and it was really powerful in a number of ways. By by having my family there, it allowed me to connect with the community in a very different way. Uh, it it showed another side to me that I wasn't just this kind of foreigner. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a foreigner, but. I wasn't just this researcher that I also had a family and coming in and probing. Uh, yeah, and things. had and and it the ability to relate as a as a parent, mm -hmm. um, and and then there's also the piece uh, for for my wife and partner, uh, for her to get an insight into my work. You know, it, mm -hmm. it can be so uh, hard, no matter what kind of work we do, to understand what our spouse or partner does and to get. A little window into their world can be amazing, and I think that was that was huge for for her to get uh, insight into what it was I was doing, and and that played out, you know, plays out years later in understanding, like having a little sense of like what I do and why I do it. Is she she got a chance to be a fly on the wall and uh, be down there in the while I was doing that field work? Mm -hmm. uh, that's very that's 
sounds like a great experience. And you know, I sort of uh, what comes to mind when you're talking about a lot of these things is, you know, academia or you know, doing research at this is very competitive, and mm-hmm. there are so many people who are willing to put off family or put off hobbies or put yeah. off things that they might actually care about but maybe don't realize it in order to push this sort of academic resume or CV to the next level. And so if you want to stay in this thing, you have to, or you at least feel like you have to sort of push aside things that you might also care about. And I think I'm starting to realize that that's actually pretty disastrous because, you know, I think all these other things sort of help you get through research in a more maybe efficient way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just chatting... Uh, with Carlos about this and you know I think the two things come to mind is is exactly as you said it you for me in my own journey I, I learned to work more efficiently um, uh, I learned about my own my own days and when I am more productive or what kind of work I can I am more productive at at which times of the day the other thing too though is it also <coughs> you know you, you learn a big lesson or I learned a big lesson just about how, you know, starting a family, it, it does, it, it reorients you a little bit in terms of your priorities and thinking about what, you know, how you make priorities, how you think about trade-offs, uh, and, and how you think about the, the journey that you're on and the work you're trying to do. Uh, you know, I can't, I, I think it's important to also recognize, you know, the privilege that, that I had, that, you know, we had a good healthcare system that allowed you know, my partner to be on paid maternity leave. And so, you know, there's really, that's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that that makes a, that's a huge barrier. So, you know, I, I was not the childbearing partner. That's going to be very different. That's going to be a very different experience for someone. Um, and whether and what kind of, of support they have from their own institutions um, or from their partner's institutions and how we're able to, um, as as families and as partners in in raising children, how we divide up and contribute to that to that work and to that care um, is is not easy and not straightforward. And so it is it, it's easy to say things should change and that there is another way. It's also important to recognize, like in my own situation, the the privilege that we had from the kind of healthcare system we had and. The kind of funding that allowed us to be able to to do that and to help make that happen, um, but it was you know having gone through that and thinking about the the way I approached it beforehand and now looking afterwards is is I've seen too many stories and and I've heard too many stories about people who have made sacrifices for you know for the for the CV or for the research to get the position uh, and it can take a toll in many different ways but sometimes you don't know that and or you're not in a place to be able to uh, you both you both make sacrifices but because you know whether perceived or real even if perceived that has a that's going to impact the kinds of decisions you make yeah. um, and so I think if if nothing else it's really about changing the the conversation it's about changing the culture um, it's about recognizing what some of the institutional barriers are and how we how we address those collectively um, how we can support early career scholars um, uh, of all 
orientations to have families, partners, spouses, because it can also play out, and that's the amazing thing about this this work around academic life is it's not just focused on families in the standpoint of of you know children, but also about caregiving for uh, maybe parents who might be getting elderly, mm-hmm. and the kind of care that needs to be provided there, and might uh, you know how do we how do we also think about the time we spend with uh, with those whether they're whether they're our siblings who might be sick and might need care and uh, what kind of sacrifices are we making or not making to be able to be a part of that while we're also doing our our work um, or or parents or grandparents even just spending time with them you know during holidays and stuff like this like setting aside the time from from work to do that can seem like a sacrifice at times exactly yeah and so speaking of sacrifice and decision making often academics sort of have to go where the jobs are and mm. so I'm, I'm curious how that might have played a role in, in between you and your partner and, and just in that decision making process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's <coughs> for we, uh, my, my wife and I moved to uh, Ottawa uh, back in 2009. We've been there for 10 years now and we've gone on and, and every year we've been there it, it's become more and more home and uh, you know a place that we we call home and we see as home and so uh, for for me uh, the idea of thinking about jobs quickly became one of how do we think about it, it there there's a geographical constraint to it um, and I was thinking about the your 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 use of the term uh, is, is a trade-off or, or limitation or constraint and it, I'm always cautious of the word I use because uh, you know it it sets a tone in terms of how you think about how you think about your life as a whole and you know we are we are complex human beings we are we are multi-dimensional um, and so it's how do you move to a space to have a conversation where it's it's both about progressing your career, but also progressing your personal life. Mm-hmm. That personal life might involve things like family, it might involve things like hobbies, volunteering, being part of your community. There's so many different things that, 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 that define who we are. And so, and then you couple that with, with, with a partner in, in crime and then that might also be not just a partner, but you know, aging parents or children. Those all start to play into your your decision making. And so, you know, we had forays, knowing we'd always come back to come back to Ottawa. We uh, spent time uh, down in Annapolis when I was doing a research fellowship, but we knew that we were going to be returning. So, again, we were fortunate that uh, my wife was in a position where she could take unpaid leave and have a job back. That's not always the case. Mm-hmm. But then we knew that we were going to be coming back. Again, we knew she'd have work there. And so it was, uh, you know, for me to think about, you know, what do I want to do next and what does that look like within the scope of where we're living? Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, you know, this idea of thinking about it as a, as a constraint is, is, a, is, a, is a challenging, I don't know if it's the right word, because... You know, there's so many things for us, you know, 
the the quality of life for us in, in Ottawa is amazing. The the community we have, our neighbors, the the kids who uh, you know go to school uh, with with our kids, and you know the access to green space and blue space and getting outdoors. There's all these other things that that help that that define who we are and what we get out of where we are, and it's. You know, the the farther I am in my career and my journey through life is is realizing how it's it's a balancing act between all these different things and and you you and we come to this place at different stages in our life or after so many moves or different jobs where you start to reorient and you think, Okay, you know, how do I these things are, are important to me. I don't wanna give them up for my career. But then I'm also thinking about, well, what does my career look like in this context? And and then and but it's not a it's not a singular piece. I think that's the other thing is we often think about these these very clear cut tracks. That's like I'm going to be in academia mm-hmm. or I'm going to be a public servant or I'm going to be a teacher or going to be a consultant. Perhaps you move back and forth between these. Um, it can evolve. And the other thing that I that I think about as well, and you know, I was just reflecting on recently, is is how do you also, you know, that's just a conversation you're having with yourself about your own career and your own like personal life, but now you have you have a a, a, a spouse or a partner, and you know, I'm always uh, I often want to push back against the 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 very narrow discussion about the two body problem being an academic problem. The two-body problem is a problem for any partnership right. where you have people who have a commitment to their career and want to progress in their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now that becomes a really interesting thing about how do, you, how do you think about dual careers? And even if you're in the same space, you're, you, you find work in the same location, how do you think about both of your careers progressing? And there's an uh, amazing conversation I remember having with... Uh, Helen Fox, who now works at National Geographic, and she talked about thinking about careers as kind of these these fits and stops, and sometimes you have a little bit of plateau, sometimes you need to kind of tone things down a little bit, because that's where you are. Your kids need you, your family needs you, and then you kind of ramp it back up again. And so it's like when I think about my my wife, who is a department chair, is thinking about getting into a, a bigger administrative role, at, at some point there's going to be more time commitment for her, so how do I think about you know what I'm looking to do. Mm-hmm. It's not just about me. It's about it's about both of us, and that these there can be these fits and starts uh, to both of our careers. And and when we think about advancing or taking on more responsibility or less responsibility, where we go with that work, how we find meaning from that work, and thinking about making those decisions together, also in the context of family. Um, so it's much more. It's it's multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a reminder of how important it is to kind of expand the conversation yeah. about what that looks like and, and how you start to find ways to articulate and operationalize that. Well, what a wonderful answer. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so I have to get you uh, to your next meeting. All right, thank and you so much. Thanks so much, Dr. Yeah. Stephen Alexander. Yeah.